Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Esther. We are going to be looking at Esther chapter 2 this week. Last week, we began our look at this book, and we discovered that right at the beginning of the book of Esther, we're dropped right into this totally chaotic scene that seems really out of place for the Bible. We're dropped into the, the courts of the king of Persia, a man named Xerxes, and, and he is the king of the largest empire in the world. He's powerful, wealthy, successful, and prideful. And we see that they've been partying, that this banquet, this party has been taking place for what amounts to 187 straight days. A party that the king essentially throws to celebrate himself to celebrate all he's done, all he's inherited, all of his accomplishments. It's essentially he's inviting all of the most important people from all over the empire to come together and say, ain't I great? And it's a party that lasts for six months. But as the party rages on and on and on and on, we see that there's this point where the king decides that he wants to show off his most prized possession, his wife. And so he calls for his wife and invites her to come and greet all of their guests. Now, we talked about what that meant last week, and we're not going to go back through the details of that. But what you do need to know is that the queen, her name is Vashti, and she declines. She says, I don't want any part of that. And we see that Xerxes, in his drunken anger, under the advisement of his officials... He banishes the queen. He says, if you're not going to come when I ask you to come, you're not invited anymore at all. And he throws her out of the kingdom. And this is the last time we see Vashti. But a king, never mind the most powerful king in all of the world, couldn't really look right, couldn't really rule right, couldn't really have the kind of respect that a king needed without a queen. And so as we move into the opening verses of chapter 2, we see that there's a solution to this problem that Xerxes and his officials come up with. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, not every sermon series, or not every week for this sermon series, are we going to do one chapter at a time, but we're going to begin at the start of chapter 2 this week. And so as we turn to Esther chapter 2, what we see is that chapter 2 begins with the word later. Or your Bible may say things like after these things. Now what you need to know is that that obviously that's an indication that time has passed, that later or after these kind of things. But it doesn't mean a day or two later. The indication is not, and then the following Tuesday. But what it means for for us as we look at that is that a substantial amount of time has passed. 
The, the, the time frame in between chapter one and chapter two, it's not just like later that day or the next morning, but it's, it's a bigger chunk of time. And it seems that somewhere along the lines of between three and four years have happened between Esther chapter one and Esther chapter two. How do we know that? Well, we know that Xerxes began his rule as king in 485 B.C., and we saw that last week in verse 1 of Esther chapter 1, that Esther chapter 1 takes place three years into the rule of King Xerxes, 482-ish B.C. And then we see that in Esther chapter 2, verse 16, that the events that described here are in the seventh year of his reign, around 479 B.C. But what about what's going on in between? What was that time jump about? What happened in that window and does it matter? Well, what happened in between these two chapters? And, and does it really matter for our story? Well, actually, what takes place between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2 actually is really important for us to understand because it helps us understand Xerxes. Helps us understand his mindset. Helps us understand where he's at mentally and emotionally as we enter into Esther chapter 2. See, in between these verses, or in between these year, in between these chapters, in between Esther chapter one and Esther chapter two, Xerxes actually leaves Persia. And he goes to war with Greece. And the war that takes place in between these two, it's actually the famous battle where Sparta and Persia go to war. The, the story of the 300 soldiers that take on the empire of Persia. That's what takes place here. See, Xerxes, in sort of his embarrassment and sort of the, this moment where he's banished the queen, but he, he wants to sort of make, a name, make an even bigger name for himself. And, and his father Darius had gone to war with Greece and had been defeated. And so Xerxes decides, I, I'm going to go right that wrong. I'm going to go conquer Greece. And so he goes off and says, I'm going to do what my father couldn't do. And he goes and he battles Greece. And he's so desperate to defeat Greece that he essentially empties the Persian bank account. He, he spends as much as, it, whatever it takes, we're going to make this happen. But he loses to Greece again. And so we have Xerxes in between chapter one and chapter two. He loses his queen. He bankrupts his empire. And he suffers defeat in battle. And so he comes back to Persia, but he comes back to Persia on a mission to sort of compensate for all that he's lost. Is he doesn't come back with his tail between his legs and he doesn't come back. He comes back amplified. An ancient, the ancient historian Herodotus described the king's life after this war as one of sensual overindulgence. And so when we think back to the king who threw himself a six-month party to say, look how awesome I am, for history to say that when he came back, he was even worse, that's, that's saying something. 
And so records from the time show, show that King Xerxes really began to sort of throw his weight around as king, throw his authority around it as he began to just take whatever and whoever he wanted from whomever he wanted, all in an attempt to make himself look more powerful after the, the things that have gone on in his life. And in fact, history will show that it was his affairs with some of the wives of his officials that ultimately get him assassinated in his own home in 463 BC. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. That, that's not in Daniel or in Esther chapter 2. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 1. So, so it's somewhere between three and four years take place in between these two chapters and enough time has passed and enough has gone on in the life of, of Xerxes that he turns his attention back to the lack of a queen. And so it says, later when Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And so his advisors, his counselors, his, his, his main guys, they come up with this plan. And what they decide to do is we're going to bring all of the most attractive girls from all across the empire. And we're going to bring them back to the king's palace. And the girls will be prepared and dressed and paraded before the king. And then he can take his pick as to which girl he would like to have be his queen. But we need to stop and be really clear here for a moment. This isn't some kind of beauty pageant. This isn't simply Cinderella. This isn't simply, oh, isn't this a great, neat story? The king is going to get, you know, and the, for, for starters, the girls that were brought to the palace, they didn't volunteer to be there. They, they would have been just scooped up, kidnapped, essentially, and brought to the palace from their families and their homes. And I said, this isn't some kind of ball like Cinderella. This is soldiers and officials going around and grabbing the prettiest girls and taking them away back to the kingdom under the authority of the king. Next, in verse 12, it will describe this 12-month beauty treatment that these girls were supposed to receive. Now, this wasn't some kind of year-long spa vacation. What we see outlined here is actually the Persian customs that were typical in marriage preparation. See, the story that's being told here is all of these women are about to marry the king. But the king is only going to marry one of these women that they were now betrothed, all of them, to marry the king. But the king would just pick one. And so not all of these women are going to be chosen. And so for the women who weren't chosen, their fate was now more in line with widowhood. Because... They know as part of this process, every single one of these women are going to lose their virginity to the king, but he's only going to choose one to be his wife. And so for the women who are not chosen, 
they don't get to go back home. They, they don't get to go back to their lives. On the surface, this, this might seem a little bit like the bachelor ancient Persia. That the king meets them all, and then at the end of it, he decides, and, and the rest of them just go back to their lives and back to other reality TV shows or whatever you do once you've been on The Bachelor. But instead, it's more like who wants to marry a brutal Persian dictator? Verse, verse 14 tells us that each one of these women would remain part of the king's harem just in case one day the king would decide to call for her. See, if they, were never, if they were not chosen, they were never going back home again. They were never going back to their old life. There, there would never be life lived outside of the palace, outside of the king's harem. So for all the women who weren't chosen, they were just stuffed away at the back of the palace to live out the rest of their lives in case the king decided he wanted them. Because after all, they're all married to him. He's just not married to all of them. But it's into this ugliness that we're brought the one the book is named after. We're, we're introduced to Esther. Verses uh, five through seven, we're introduced to both Esther and her cousin Mordecai for the first time. And verse 7 tells us that Esther was one of these beautiful girls. One of these beautiful girls that was taken and brought to the palace. But when she's brought to the palace, what we discover is that she's not only beautiful on the outside, but we discover that there's something beautiful on the inside about her because she's immediately, or she immediately earns the favor of a man named Haggai. Haggai is, is the king's servant put in charge of all of the girls who are brought to the palace. And, and Haggai sees something in Esther. And he knows she would be a good queen. And so immediately he begins to, to show her favoritism. It says that she's given special food. And, and that she's given attendance of her very own. That she's given people to serve her. And it says that she's given the best place to live. And so Esther is treated better than all these other girls because this, this man, Haggai, sees something in her and says, she would be a good queen. And we discover that as Esther's going through all of this stuff at the palace, her cousin Mordecai is coming by regularly to check on her. How are you? How are things? How are things going for you? What's taking place? And we see that in verse 10, Mordecai gives her some advice on how to live in the palace. Verse 10 says this, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Mordecai says that she should keep her nationality and her family history a secret. Well, why does he tell her that? Well, for nationality, I, I'm sure... Or for sure, the Jews were seen as lesser than the Persians. Just in terms, is, is one is in captivity and one is holding the other in captivity. 
And the Jews had been in captivity for so long and by so many different people that the Persians would have looked down on them. And so to say, I'm a Jewish person, may disqualify her even before she's met the king. Because the king may not want to do that. And then secondly, we talked about last week how when it came to family, she, she didn't have any. Her, her mom and dad were dead. She was being raised by her uncle. That This is not the, the kind of situation, not the kind of family that you usually want to invite into your royal lineage. That, that marriage at the time was often like international treaty stuff, that, that you, the king would marry the daughter of another king to, to symbolize the, the treaties that would take place between them or, or to bring empires together and in different things like that, to, to invite just some commoner into the royal family. That, that wasn't a thing people did back then. And so he says, don't tell her that, don't, don't tell anybody you're a Jew and don't tell anybody about your family. But I think that there's a, another, perhaps, layer to Mordecai and his advice that he gives. Because the other thing to consider is that as we learn more about Mordecai, we see that, that he has some kind of position inside the royal court. When we're first introduced to him, in verse 5, it says, Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now, for modern readers, when we read that, it's just background information. Hmm, neat. That's good to know. But for its original Jewish audience, it would have made their jaws drop. They, that, that sentence doesn't make sense to an original Jewish audience. See, we, we don't even think twice about a name like Mordecai. Because we think, well, that, that sounds Jewish. That, that sounds like a Jewish name. But it isn't originally a Jewish name. The name Mordecai was, was adopted by Jewish and was embraced by the Jewish people because of this story because of who Mordecai was in this story, they adopted this name as Jewish, but it isn't originally Jewish. Mordecai is a Persian name. And worse than that, it's a name that honors the Persian god, Marduk. And so to say there was a Jew living in the citadel of Persia named Mordecai, was a sentence that would get people's antennas really high up because that, that doesn't make sense. See, it'd be one thing if his name was Abraham or his name was David and he lived in the citadel. We'd have reason to say, well, he, at least he hasn't compromised his Jewish identity. Likewise, it could be favorable for, for someone named Mordecai to live among the Jewish exiles in the city of Susa. But a Jewish man named Mordecai living in the citadel probably means that he was a compromised person. That he'd sacrificed his identity and taken up a place in the palace or in the center of power of a foreign government. Now, to be sure, the Persians were a better foreign empire to be in charge of you than the Babylonians were. But it's still a foreign government with a man who saw himself as a god for a king with a pagan religion at its core. 
And so when we meet Mordecai, when we meet this man named Mordecai, we're probably meeting a compromised man. A man living with a Persian identity in service to a Persian king. And so when he says to Esther, don't tell them who you are. For Mordecai, there's probably two things going on here. First, it's worked for me so far. I'm doing okay. I'm not in trouble. Second, if you tell them who you are, they're going to know who I am. And so there's a little bit of self-preservation in this, that if, if she comes out and says, I, I'm a Jew, well, wait, what does that make your cousin? And all of a sudden, things start to spiral for Mordecai. And so he gives her this advice, not in a sinister way, but in a way that just says, hey, um, this has worked for me so far. And this isn't just you we're talking about here. And so when Esther, or when it was Esther's turn to be presented before the king, she takes the advice that she was given from Mordecai, and she takes all that the, the other man named Haggai had for her, and she makes the impression that they all hope for. Verse 17 says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he sat a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And we come to this moment that, that sort of seems like that moment when Cinderella's foot slides into the glass shoe, where it's like, ah, we've made it at last. But let's stop and think for a moment about Esther and the predicament and the place that she's found herself in. See, in order for her to be chosen, she had to hide and deny everything about herself. Or about herself. She would have had to defy Jewish law and her Jewish upbringing. See, if, if you're told, don't tell anybody you're a Jew, what that extends to is you can't live like a Jew. See, she would have had to eat whatever the Persians ate. And there's dietary restrictions to being a Jew. But she can't do that. She had to live the way that the Persians lived. And there's expectation in the Old Testament law of this is what life looks like. And so for her to say, I'm not going to do that, would have been for her to sacrifice a tremendously large part of who she was. Not to mention the fact that she had to go to bed with a man that was not her husband. Sure, he ended up choosing her, but at the time, that was no sure thing. See, that would have happened with all of these girls. But even more than all of that, for Esther, as a good Jewish girl, see, Xerxes was a Gentile. And God had made it very clear that this was not supposed to be a thing. 
We see the prophet Ezra command all of the Jewish people when they come out of exile to divorce their Gentile spouses just to show how serious God was about this. And so Esther's put in this position where we look and we go, she's made queen. Thank God. But it's also, and we can say that because we know how the story ends. We know what Esther's going to do. But for Esther... Maybe there's some joy that she doesn't have to live as an outcast in the back of the palace. But it's not this, oh, thank you, God, kind of moment. It's still very difficult. See, just like how we said that Mordecai was compromised, even being chosen as queen, it seems like Esther is on a road that maybe she never chose but she's at least on the road to being compromised if she isn't there already. And so we come to this complex, challenging part of this story where we see that Esther is chosen as queen, and that seems good. But Xerxes is still Xerxes. And that position didn't go so well for the last woman who had it. And so it's not necessarily this fairy tale moment where the king finally finds his long lost queen and they lived happily ever after. At least we can't make that assumption. It looks on the surface more to be like the monster has taken someone else captive. And for all of the other women who were there, we don't want to forget about them. This is the moment where functionally their life ended. And so maybe we can see God somewhere in Esther being chosen as king. Because like I said, we know the end of the story. We know what God is doing here. But man, it's still really hard. We talked about in the, in the Esther chapter one, it was really hard to look and find God in Esther chapter 1. And in the story that we've journeyed on through Esther chapter 2, I think it's still pretty hard to look and go, wow, look at God's goodness. When what we see is kidnapping, human trafficking, compromise, and so much terribleness. Because we know how the story ends, we can say that there's slivers of God in Esther chapter 2. We know where this is going, and so we can celebrate. But, but as this story is being lived out, I would contend that it's still pretty hard to see God's goodness in all of this. So what are we supposed to see here? What, what are we supposed to understand is Esther just sort of this cog in a system that God is just simply using to save his people? That Esther's immaterial and her life and her story is immaterial and she's just the means to an end? Well, of course the answer to that is no. Because there's so much more of God to see here than just, well, God needs to, to save his people and 
Esther happened to be the closest one to him when he decided to do it. So I don't all pick William because he's sitting in the front row. So here we go. Good luck, buddy. That there's more to the story than just that. And so to close our time off together, I want to give you two truths. Last week I gave you one. This week I'm going to give you two. We'll see if there's three next week. But true truths. <laughs> try that again. Two truths for us to think about and to take away from the story of Esther being made queen. First, only God knows the end of our story from the beginning. See, God is great and his plans are great. And as much as we can start reading into the book of Esther and say it's hard to find God in the pages of this story, it's hard to find God. God knew the end of the story from the beginning. God knew what he was doing. God is great and his plans are great. His plans for our lives are great. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments where we feel lost. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments when we don't understand what's going on. There's not going to be moments in our lives where we look and we go, where is God in any of this? All that I look around and see is difficulty. All that I look, it's not right. Where's God? But in these moments we can cling to what we know to be true and hold on to God as best we can in whatever the situation we find ourselves in. Believing in the truth of Philippians 1.6 that says, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. And so as we sit in the middle of the story and as we sit in a place where we say, where is God? We can hold on to the truth that says that God will finish our story. That as dark and as difficult and as challenging as it may be, God is still faithful to tell our story. He's still faithful to tell your story. He's still working in your life. Even when we can't see it, he's still working. And here's truth number two. Our God is not just great, but he is also good. When we look at the story of Esther, of course, the story of Esther is the salvation of the Jewish people from what we're going to dive into next week. There's no question about it. That is the grand, big story being told in the book of Esther, is the salvation of the Jewish people from the death at the hands of the Persian Empire. But I don't believe that somehow Esther is just means to an end. See, God is using Esther to bring salvation. But God cares deeply 
for every person in this story. And God cares deeply for Esther. And here's how I think we can see this. He could have orchestrated the preservation of his people in any way he wanted to. But he chose a palace. And I think he chose this path because he didn't just want the Jewish people to survive. He didn't just want them to squeak out, to meek out a very eager existence where the best that they could say is, well, at least we're not dead. He didn't just want the Jewish people to survive, but he wanted them to thrive. And even in choosing this path for their preservation, he could have just placed Esther into the king's orbit and and just let the details fall where they might. But he didn't do that. See, even in, in the difficulty of this moment, we can still see God and his care for Esther. Esther was cared for. She was cared for by her cousin Mordecai. We read about him coming to visit her every day. And he gave her the best advice he had. Esther was cared for by Haggai, this Persian authority who God gave her favor with. And she got the best food. And she got the the attendance. She got the best place to live. See, even in this difficulty, when we look close, we can see God's hand at work. And the story is true of our lives too, is that in our lives and in our story, there are times when everything is terrible. But when we choose to look more closely, we can still find the fingerprints of God in areas of our lives. We can look and we can say, this may not be good, but... God's given me this. And so while I wait for God to take care of that, I can give thanks for this. See, Esther was even cared for by the man who cared for nothing but himself. Through that Esther was even cared for by Xerxes. Verse 17, and I forgot to put it in my slide, so it's not there. But it shows us just how much God cared about the details. In the NASB translation, the New American Standard Bible translation, it tells us that Xerxes loved Esther, that she found found favor with him, and that he was kind to her. Xerxes, a man who wasn't exactly known for being being loving and kind to anyone, maybe ever, was loving and kind to Esther. See, Esther the person mattered to God. Not just Esther the solution. Esther the person mattered to God, not just Esther the answer to the question of the salvation of the Jewish people. But God looked at Esther, loved her, and cared for her because she mattered to God. And friends, you matter to God too. But in the challenges of life and the challenges that we might face and the moments of difficulty and the moments where we look and we don't know, 
you can know that we serve a good God and you matter to God. And God's fingerprints are on your life. Whether you see them or not, whether you know them or not, God's fingerprints are all over your life because you matter deeply to him. Yes, our God is great, but he is also good. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that even in the story of Esther, it can be so easy to lose focus on you. It can be so easy for us in the immediacy of now to lose focus on your goodness, to lose focus on what it is that you're doing and on the story you're telling. But God, I pray that as we've looked at the story of Esther and we we look at this story that's being told of this incredibly difficult challenging place in life and this girl that's being brought into this situation that's, that's not of her own making, but she's, she's brought into this place where, where she has to figure out how to live out her story in the face of all of this terribleness. God, I pray that for each one of us as we face our challenges of life, God, I pray that we would be able to see ourselves in the story of Esther. God, that we would be able to look and see and understand that your fingerprints are all over our lives. God, that you know the end of the story from, our, from the beginning. You know the story that our life is being told in a way that we can't even fathom. And God, my prayer for each one of us here is that we would be able to rest in the knowledge that you will be faithful to carry us through the story of our lives from now until the conclusion of this because you are a good God. And God, I pray that 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 would be a truth that would resonate in our hearts and our lives because God, we know that our experience doesn't always tell us that you are a good God. That there are moments where we can struggle to see your goodness. There are moments where we can struggle to look at our lives and our situations and the places we find ourselves in. And it may be a struggle to say, God is good all the time. But God... There is a truth to be told when it comes to you. A truth that says you are good. And so God, I pray that in these moments where we can't experience your goodness or maybe we're not experiencing your goodness, God, would we be able to cling to the truth that you are good all the time and all the time you are good. And God, that we would be able to have our eyes open. God, I pray that you would open each one of our, our, our eyes right even now to our lives and to the places where your fingerprints are all over our lives. God, I pray that for those of us who need a reminder of your goodness and your grace in our life today, God, may we see again with fresh eyes that we serve a good, good father who loves us and cares for us infinitely. 
God, I pray that as we continue to journey through the book of Esther, God, may we just be so confronted by the truth of the fact that even in life's most difficult moments, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we don't need to fear because you're right there with us. God, I thank you that you were right there with Esther. And God, I thank you that you're right here with me. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Smoke clouds all around Couldn't see your face Darkness Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. You're fine.